Dr. John Verveke is a lecturer at the University of Toronto in psychology, Buddhist psychology, and cognitive science, and this conversation is absolutely mind-blowing. After talking to him, I was on fire for three days straight, just learning different ways to get inside our own psyche and have amazing, game-changing conversations with those people around us, whether we agree or not, even a technique he calls anti-debate, which is really just beautiful for the time that we're living in. I can't wait to share this show with John Verveke. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Worldview. And you might have heard me talk about Worldview before, but this is one of those experiences that is becoming available, which is really going to change the paradigm about how we look at the earth and how we look at space. This is stratospheric ballooning, where you get inside a capsule that floats up over 100,000 feet into the stratosphere using helium as the lift and propulsion system. And then you get to look down at some of the great sites of our planet, the Great Barrier Reef, the Grand Canyon. Maybe you get to go through the Aurora Borealis. There are so many incredible adventures to be had definitely check it out if you're interested. This is a company that I'm involved with, that I'm a part of, and a wholehearted believer that it's important to start shifting perspective. And it's not just the people who are in the capsule, it's going to be the people streaming live from the capsules and really sharing a different perspective about the world, a world without borders, a world where you see the planet Earth as one being like it is, and all of us as cells supporting that being. As soon as cells of any being get out of order and just start reproducing and start doing things without coherence with the organism, well, that's dis-ease. And I think that's what we're experiencing on this planet right now. And so hopefully as we see the organism as a whole, we'll start to take care of our earth as a whole. And I think worldview can really help with that, help shift perspective. And at the very least, though, it's going to be a hell of a fucking ride. It's going to be beautiful, amazing, life-changing in many, many different ways, whether you're looking up at the stars or looking down at the earth for the many hours that you have in the capsule. So check it out. Go to thewholeworldview.com. That's the W-H-O-L-E worldview.com. Next up, we have on it. And I'm going to talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the Black Label version of Alpha Brain. What does Black Label mean? Well, that's just like the premium. That's the good shit. That's the top shelf shit. Now I love Alpha Brain. I'm actually on Alpha Brain regular right now, and I feel sharp as fuck, and I love it. But that's really actually only because I ran out of Alpha Brain Black Label. The reason that I like Black Label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients. It has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain. It also has different forms of choline, and it has mucunipurians, which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged, focused, and rewarded for the work that I'm doing. So Alpha Brain Black Label is just my absolute go-to. It's also really good as a mood enhancer. I just feel better when I'm taking it. And when my mood is better, I'm more productive and I'm able to be at my best. So if you guys haven't checked it out, please do. It is the shit. Also, the packaging is super sexy, so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything at Onit and also Alpha Brain Black Label. Once again, onit.com slash Aubrey. Next up, we have Higher Dose. 
Now, Higher Dose has some pretty incredible tech that they're making available for home use. So they have basically a pad that you can lay out, lay out on the ground like it is in my living room, or lay it out on a massage table or lay it out on a bed. And in this pad, this pad that is layered with different crystals, different structures, that pushes both infrared and pulse electromagnetic field through the pad. Now, this is something that if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean much to you. But let me just tell you what it feels like when you're on there. It feels kind of warm and it feels kind of relaxing at first. But the longer you stay on it, the more you start to feel this lightness and this euphoria and this deep relaxation come over you. And it's something that you might not notice right away. But as you lie there, as you allow the infrared and you allow the pulse electromagnetic field to work, you'll start to feel significant changes. Great for meditation practice, great for taking those midday naps, great for a journey if you want to go on a journey on the mat. There's also a lot of benefits to both infrared and the PEMF. So I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to higherdose.com, use the promo code AMP75 to save $75. And really though, this is something that's worth trying if you're able to. Higherdose.com, promo code AMP75 to save $75 off. And finally, we have Plunge. So as any of you who have read my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, know the cold plunge or cold shower practice is essential for my human optimization, really foundation. It's a way that I can optimize to level up both my physical body with the stress response, with the cortisol response, with the optimization of your hormone regulation that can happen while you dive and submerge into the cold. But it's also a way for me to practice mental override, for me to get myself to push past that initial resistance says, ah, it's too cold. I don't want to get in. And then you get in and all the benefits start to accrue. And I become a different person at the end of the cold plunge than I was at the beginning of the cold plunge. And every successive time that I do it, I just get a little bit better in all of those categories. So one of the times that I was posting this on Instagram, one of the people watching was the cold plunge that makes the absolute most elegant and best cold plunge I've seen on the market. And I was busy diving into my converted chest freezer and they were like, hey, we got a solution that's way better. Let us show you what this thing is all about. And I'm so glad that they did because not only is this tub the most aesthetically pleasing tub I've seen, it has all of the built-in cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you a stable temperature with circulating water in a sexy-ass tub. And it's also way cheaper than a lot of the other options out there, some of which still use ice. Like you have to import ice and get more ice and dump it in. And that's cool. It's fun to be kind of floating around in the ice. But this is the elegant solution that actually has everything comprehensively built in. And it's easy to get set up. You just fill it up with a hose and you can use a filter on your hose as well if you want to filter out anything that's in the tap water. And you just have a pristine cold plunge tub that looks great and is available 24-7 for your cold plunge practice. So I encourage you guys to check it out, not only for the benefits to your mitochondria and all the physical benefits, but also the benefits to your mind for that willingness to push past any resistance that you might have, train that mental override, train that willpower, and just check out their tub. If you're able to, this is one of the biggest things that I can recommend to really level up your practice across all levels. 
So go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp. Use the code AMP for $111 off and just check it out. Thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp. Use the code AMP for $111 off and share it. When you dive in, when you get in there, share your experience. We'll talk about it. I'll be diving in. So let's do this together. Let's all get a little bit better together. And now an uninterrupted podcast with John Verveke. John, it's great to talk to you. It's great being here, Aubrey. So I've been listening to you incessantly as I've been preparing for this. And <laughs> I'm so fucking impressed. I mean, you're really one of the greatest philosophical minds I've ever listened to. And I was a philosophy major, so I've listened to a lot of great philosophical minds. I've done a lot of great podcasts, and I've really just been blown away. Okay, no pressure on me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that. That's, that's very kind. Um, I mean, uh, there was a lot of people that um, helped me. There's a lot of people I collaborate with. And um, so I, I, owe, I owe a debt of gratitude to a lot of people to help me get to the place where uh, I can do work that other people yeah. like you find useful. So well, thank we you. all stand on the we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and uh, and also yeah. our peers are also the giants that we yeah, collaborate but, together. You know, and for me, also my students, the years and years mm -hmm. of my students showing up in good faith, giving good feedback, good comment, that helped me tremendously across the years. Tremendously, still does. Uh, right. So I also I also do I owe a debt of gratitude to them as well. Well, like Yogi Bhajan, I believe, has said, if you want to learn, teach. You know, I mean, it's always a, it's always a reciprocal process. It's a cycle. Very much. I find that uh, the best way to teach is to share your ongoing learning with your students. Absolutely. And then it brings you to their level. So they're more receptive to very much very more much. receptive to receiving your language because they're not projecting that you are some master, you know, evolved being that they are not. And so different rules apply to you than apply to them. And then they discard the, the teachings. Very, yeah, that's very much the case. That's well said. And what, what it also encourages is many of my students go on to be collaborators with me. We end up publishing papers together and doing work together. And that's been a great joy for my life too. Yeah. Well, now that I've sufficiently set you up, I want to go into, uh, I go into a, a, little, a little game. And the game is that I've heard you uh, on several different podcasts be yeah. a bit reticent to ascribe a generalized meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And- I believe that I'm through my own Ikarian hubris that I'm willing to endeavor such a such a foolish feat as to try and do it. And I would love for you to take the role as you know the Buddha recommends: be like the goldsmith, cut and scrape and heat, yeah, and yeah. see what see what we can find to to what I have to offer. Yeah. So, my meaning of life, which I believe is not just personal and per perspectival, but could be generalized, is really to live, like capital L, live in the most robust sense of the word, the most romantic sense of the word, to, to laugh, to cry, to dance, to hug, to fuck, to eat, to drink coffee, to take psychedelics, to find our way to God, to really live, to be in peace, to be in stillness, to find you know, the great beloved as Rumi did with nature, all of these, to really live in this robust sense and live in the world as well. And at simultaneously, do your best to ensure that everyone else can do the same for as long as, as possible, perpetuating what James Karsh would call the infinite game. So that's like, that would be to me how I would endeavor to ascribe a generalized meaning of life. 
Okay, so first of all, uh, I'm, the term that's used for what you're describing, it goes back to uh, certain translations of Aristotle. Uh, one translation of eudaimonia is flourishing. So it's a general term for that multidimensional thing you said, that what you want is you want to flourish and you want to afford other people flourishing. Now, um, so part of the issue I would uh, ask is, what do you mean by generalized? Uh, do you mean this is for all people? Or do you mean that the universe is trying to do that for everything in it? Which do you mean? Mm. Both, I would say, but differently, because there's different, there's different intentions, different beings, and different intelligence involved at a different strata. So, this is what I was mostly speaking to was people. However, right. from a from a universal perspective, you have to also bring in the necessity for chaos, the necessity for destruction. You have to bring in this almost a perspectival. You have to just create these large. Mm -hmm. laws the game board itself without any necessary intention for a finite game or an infinite game because there is only the infinite game so it's like almost a different slightly different rule applies although i do believe that life capital l life is looking to continue itself you know so in some ways it's similar but different right so what i would say to that is that um, when I make the distinction between meaning in life, and like I said, not just me, but other uh, psychologists and cognitive scientists, uh, versus the meaning of life, that's exactly where that distinction lies. The mm. meaning in life is to say something analogous. It doesn't have to be theistic, but it's analogous to this idea. God has a plan for you, and your job is to discover what that plan is, or what your destiny is, or what your fate is, and align yourself as much as you possibly can uh, with it. Now, that and that's why I asked you, are you talking sort of the universe without human beings or, or are you talking about the, just the content of human lives? Mm -hmm. that, the, that, that first proposal, and I am willing to talk to people and I talk to people about it. I talked to Paul Vanderclay and J.P. Marceau about whether or not the, the let's well, just for lack of a better term, whether or not the physical universe has any kind of telos or purpose to it. I, 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 I'm still convinced there's no good argument for that. Um, you know, just a couple of simple points, you know, 99.9% .9 of the universe is hostile to life. It's not set up for life. 99.9% uh, .9 of the time that the universe has existed, there's been no life, um, things like that. And I don't want to get into a deep metaphysical debate. What I'm saying is there's well, just so, just so I can counter that briefly, yeah. cause I can't help myself. And so oh, please, 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 I would say that if you're talking about the universe, which is infinite in its possibilities right practically yeah. i mean there may be a there may be a finite nature of the universe we're not we're not exactly sure it seems to be expanding yeah. that idea that there's a limitation to the amount of life because some planets don't have it may not actually be valid because there may be an infinite amount of planets given the infinite nature of time and given it the infinite expansion of the universe so it may be maximum like there's no splitting necessarily splitting infinity so there may be the maximum amount of life that's one point the other point would be that i myself am, am an animist based upon my own 22 years of sure. ceremonial psychedelic use ayahuasca all of these things i've talked to the moon as a being right the moon is a rock it's a it's a dead what we would call a dead rock but the moon has talked to me the sun has talked to me and that could be a projection of my own mind I don't believe it because subjectively in my own experience, I feel like I talk to the moon. So I yeah. believe in I believe in the animism. So you could say that these things are hostile to life. Well, they're just not 
expressing life in the form that we like to call life their life in a different dimensional reality so that would be my my kind of counter to that claim that i guess my fundamental claim is that the universe is on team existence and team articulation it's it's very it's very limited though it doesn't have a telos beyond that like it wants things to do a certain thing it just wants to be basically and to be be maximized and articulated so um again i I don't know which way we want to go on this we could get into let's just go wherever (laughs) but the the point i would want to make to that even at at a sort of an easier methodological point is the problem is is if i try to peg my study on what makes lives meaningful to particular metaphysics yours is not unique and neither is it universal right there are many metaphysics about uh, whether or not the universe is animated, whether or not there, there's a telos to it, whether or not we can make any of those positions consonant with our existing physics. That's all very controversial and it's very pluralistic. So I, I don't think I, I can resolve that mm. before I can study this phenomenon. And so uh, I, I remain, therefore, not just metaphysically, but sort of methodologically agnostic. It's like, I can't, and I don't even think I have the expertise. I don't know who does, by the way, but I don't have the expertise <laughs> to decide that issue. What I can do is do what you do in science. I can find a, you know, an observable, measurable phenomena that we can get into theoretical debate about, we can argue about. And what we can do is see if that's predictive of other things. Is there, so when people are talking about how meaningful their lives are, can we can we nail that down? Is that predictive of their mental health? Is it predictive of their relationship health? Things like that. And so that's doable. And I don't want to make doing that contingent on having solved these metaphysical, metaphysical issues that mm-hmm. it looks like we have not been able to resolve in several millennia. So that's why I sort of take this stance. Uh, you're right. I'm reticent. I don't, I don't jab at people claiming that there's a meaning of life. I just say, I, that's not what I'm doing. And this is my reasons for not doing it. I'm not, I, I'm not clear about it, and I don't think there's any definitive answer on that. This is what I can work on, and this is what I want to work on, because I want to make a difference in people's lives. So that's not me doing a subtle insult to your metaphysics either. I'm just trying to be honest about how, how sure, I try sure. to resolve these issues. I think what I'm also exhibiting is that my metaphysics are playing a, a, a very important process in my own personal meaning. Yes, that, and that is interesting to me. And see, I want to say, does that, is that a general feature? Not your particular metaphysics, but it's general. It's people's attachment or their involvement with their commitment to what you might call more neutrally a worldview. Is that significant to whether or not they would commit suicide, right? That's the kind of question that really interests me. And so while I may not you know, be in agreement about your particular metaphysical claims, I think there's a substantial reason to agree with you, uh, you know, that having a relationship that feeling like you are have are you connected to a coherent worldview that does that have an impact on how meaningful you find your life i think there's good reason to think that is true Mm -hmm. it seems like there's it's almost it feels to me like virtually uh maybe not a necessity but absolutely one of the most helpful things possible is to have a metaphysical have a metaphysical purpose beyond just our purely you know mundane worldly purpose it seems to be like extraordinarily helpful for me believing that i'm on team life you know that and i'm on team infinite game 
that really helps beyond just like, oh yeah, I want to grow the podcast. I want to have a nice family and what, you know, all of these different things. It really, really helps. It gets me out of a lot of dark places. And that's a really good point because we tend to in the West for whatever the West means, we tend to reduce meaning in life. If you'll allow me to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. We tend to reduce that to purpose. Do you have a purpose? What's your purpose? Right. But the thing you're describing turns out to be as important or more important. It's called mattering. So what really seems, no pun intended, what really seems (laughs) to matter to people about how meaningful their life is, is if they feel connected to something, and this is the metaphor that's often used, they they feel connected to something larger than themselves, more real than themselves. Susan Wolf, uh, that was the main argument she made in her book on meaning in life and why it matters. So that sense of connectedness, almost reverence, that mattering to something bigger, deeper, more real than yourself, that, ma- again, that, that is, contributes more to meaning in life than, oh, I've got, a, I've got an end goal or an overarching purpose to my life. Mm. I've, so in my case, I can't imagine that I would ever believe something enough without experiencing it. Like the difference between knowing with a K or being told something or yeah. taking something as, you know, traditionally we've been told like an article of faith, just believe it because it said so, or believe it because it's in this book, never could work for me. But I do a, let's say, a, you know, a bufo, a various a 5-MEO DMT journey, and I become God. And there's no other word for it. I cannot possibly use it. I would love, I love to use a different word potentially, but God is the word that makes the most sense in that case. It, 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 it assumes me, I assume it, I d- dissolve into it, whatever you want to say. And then all of a sudden, it's real. It's real. Like, I can't deny it anymore. It's real. I know that it's real. So this experiential, this experiential gnosis seems yeah. to be, to me, essential for me to actually believe something enough to have meaning. But it doesn't seem like it's necessarily essential for everybody. It just, this seems like, a, for me, it is, though. Well, I can say a couple of things. We ran an experiment in my lab and we've, you know, presented at a couple of conferences. There is a relationship, a prediction relationship. Now it's a correlational study, so I can't say causes, but I can say predictive. There's a predictive relationship between how many mystical experiences you've had in life and how meaningful you find your life. That's mm-hmm. a general finding. Um, and then you've got the work coming out of the Griffith lab that people who have a genuine mystical experience, show a real change in their personality structure. Uh, I don't know, you know, if you're aware of the, like the big five, openness reliably increases for long-term after having a mystical experience. That's a fundamental change in the way you're oriented and understanding yourself in the world. And then thirdly, I've been, I do a lot of work. I talk about it in my series and some of the uh, stuff I'm trying to get published and some of it I've got published. Um, The, there's there's a fancy name I've given to it. It's called ontonormativity. This sense of the really real, that this Mm. is a really real experience. And what people have found, Yaden and other, is this is a reliable result. Um, People will have this experience of the really real, and then they will change their life to be more in conformity. So they Mm. feel more connected to that really real. And by objective measures, their lives get better. Hmm. Like, you know, the relationships, their mental health, uh, uh, their, their sense of, uh, you know, uh, subjective well-being, lots of 
objective measures, their lives get better. Now, for me, I, I mean, I've had such experiences. I've been, you know, meditating and doing Tai Chi Chuan and for, for literally decades. Um, but for me as a scientist, what's really interesting is I share that phenomenology with you. But it's if you stand back and think about it as a scientific problem, it's it's really interesting because normally we decide the realness of things by how well they fit into our sort of everyday, you know, pattern of how things make sense. So let me give you a prototypical example. You have a dream and you come out and you say, oh, that wasn't real because this is real. The everyday is real because the dream doesn't fit in. Or you get drunk and you have some weird experience. You go, oh, that wasn't real because it doesn't fit into all of this. What's really powerful and interesting about these experiences is people do exactly the opposite. They go into these experiences and they say, that was real. And all of <laughs> this is less real. Right. And, and so for me, it's like, why are they doing that? How are they doing it? So why are they doing it? How are they doing it? And then a really interesting question, are they justified in doing it? Is there good? Re I argue that I think they are justified in doing it. Um, and so that for me is a really interesting question. So all of the things you've talked about, there's a things, like I said, that I'm directly studying and I'm trying to understand. Right? So, and why are we, and, and by the way, your, your claim about, you know, maybe not many people, um, reliably, it looks around 30 to 40% of the population have these potentially transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. But our culture is not set up to give people a, a worldview that allows them to make sense of it or allows them to turn it into that motivation for transformation into some kind of well-vetted educational program, right? So for many people, these experiences are, can be disturbing or troubling because they have no good machinery to help them assimilate and proper, properly metabolize it. So I don't think it's that these experiences aren't prevalent. It's that our culture is not open and conducive to people talking about them and developing and expressing them. So, you know, based on everything that you just said, the fact that we're entering into this psychedelic renaissance Mm -hmm. which for you know for, i've heard you talk about this as well this is not a new thing like the Eleusinian nope. mysteries the, the yeah. what happened at delphi all of these things these have yeah. all kinds of ancient corollaries all the mystery schools all of these places that whether it was psychedelic ergot we don't exactly know but it seems right. like entheogenic use was something that's been historical you know at the very least brian murrescu talks about it in, in so many ways we're entering into a new era where this is possible and 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 actually going to it's also it's possible now but there's some repercussions depending on where you go i've always been fortunate enough to be able to go to peru to drink ayahuasca or go to you know different places to experience a lot of these medicines um given what you're seeing from the science and what you just mentioned is this a source of optimism for you as we're looking at the meaning crisis that we're currently in and, and i'm happy to talk a little bit more about that obviously that's a, a core yeah. tenant of what you're working on but is that something that's giving you a, a sense of optimism based on what where we're headed it, i mean it is um uh, in the sense uh i, I just want to put a caution out there uh, i think of psychedelics both uh, sub I, I i agree with aiden line we should broaden the category of psychedelic to be anything that's mind revealing. It can be a substance, it can be a practice. So we have yeah, breath work, breath work, meditation, all the things that you mentioned, ecstatic dance. Yeah, all yeah, that. All that, very much. Um, these are very powerful tools. I would call them psychotechnologies. They're very powerful tools. And therefore, 
Um, I'm hopeful for the renewed interest as long as it's being integrated with a renewed interest in the wise transformation of lives. Um, I'm concerned about the po possible commodification of these and the reduction of them to uh, recreational um, kinds of things. I mean, we know, for example, ecstasy was, ecstasy within a therapeutic context can be deeply transformative, but you know, people were also taking it. I don't know if they still do that, raves. And that's a very different- they still setting. do. As long as raves exist, ecstasy will exist. Right. And so my concern about uh, this is that we're doing something that, for example, let me give you an analogy. The West has done with mindfulness. So if you take a look at other cultures, you know, look at Buddhism, you have the eightfold path, you have meditative practices, contemplative practices, moving practices, ethical practices, you have this whole dynamical system that's rich and self-correcting, so it can deal with the dynamic complexity of the human psyche. And what do we, we've reduced it to what's been called mindfulness, you know, sitting and doing just meditation as if that's going to be sufficient. And I worry that we will do the same kind of commodification and trivialization. So I, I don't believe in, in, in prohibition. I don't, the, 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 the evidence is clear. The prohibition does nothing uh, like, and, you, you, and all you do is criminalize people, provide money for organized crime and destroy lives. But on the other hand, I think we should consider that psychedelics should be, the use of psychedelics, substances and practices should be properly integrated into like an educational program in which people are being taught how, like what you see in indigenous cultures, how these, how these experiences fit in, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, into a more comprehensive worldview and into a set, an ecology of practices that are working together. Because all practices have their dark side. You need to have mm. many practices to counterbalance and counteract each other and also mutually afford and synergize with each other. And if we would, if we would situate, so I'm going way beyond the, the simplistic leery set and setting. I'm talking about like a sapiential framework, yeah. an ecology of practices. That's what I think. And if, and, and if we move in that direction, that gives me great hope. But I fear that we will do to these experiences what we have done to mindfulness. Yeah, I think there's going to be some of that. Commodification is inevitable. I mean, you see all of these different companies springing up. Most medicalization, I think, is actually more likely than the recreational kind of issues yeah. that you're talking about because the actual legalizations that are happening, there's some decriminalizations, which is a, a different yeah. thing. Yeah. But the legalizations are happening on the medical front, which is they're very well tended, you know, like the the work that MAPS is doing and training yeah. the yeah. MDMA assisted psychotherapists, same with uh, you know, the psilocybin treatments. It's all it's all in conjunction with therapy, with follow-up calls, with a with a whole thing, which will yes. help give yes. a broader context. I also but I just feel like I hundred percent agree with you about this sapiential framework, you know, I don't know if that was exact language you used, but it's it makes perfect sense to me that a more robust framework. I do also think that people need some kind of transcendent experience in order to even want to work to create this framework, right? It's like they almost enough people need to need to be, whoa, holy shit, this was big. How do I contain this? What do we do? How do we create the right thing? So it is, I think there's an inevitability that there's going to be some really tough experiences. There's going to be some people who, you know, take these, take these uh, 
entheogens that shouldn't go through experiences that have difficult times. But overall, it's, I think, the part of the process that's going to lead to hopefully building this world. This this world that you're describing is is the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, like Charles Eisenstein says. That's what it is. It has this all built in, that these transcendent experiences are part of our culture. And this is something that we're talking about, and this is something we're working to integrate. And it's not like we're you know being gaslighted by society when we say, hey, I just, I just experienced God. And they're like, yeah, whatever, bro. You know, it, it, that's not the reality that we're in. They're like, wow, tell me about it. How was your experience? Oh, it was similar to this. Like that world is just a dramatically different world than the world we're in now. It, at large, while there's pockets that do exist exactly like I say. I think that's well said. Um, so uh, in Canada, we've, you know, marijuana uh, was decriminalized and then medicalized and now it's recreational. And I'm hoping, and I think maybe we're in agreement about this from what I, what I hear you saying. I'm hoping that the step beyond medicalization of psychedelics um, will not be directly into recreation, that we'll get the intervening step of, no, 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 let's use this. Let's use this to address the spiritual and existential concerns of people in a intelligent, organized, and coherent manner. Um, uh, so it's very important, and this is again part of like, the indigenous use of ethnogens, right, is that this is not something that people are doing just as isolated individuals. And I don't just, I mean, obviously there's just core safety issues, but there's also, there's also the general issue that a, a worldview that's not shared is not is not a fully is not a functioning worldview, yeah. um, and so you need. Um, so if, if I would put it this way, ecologies of practices need to be homed within shared communities. We need to rely on distributed cognition, not just individual cognition, to properly help us curate the development of these practices and the development of the use of these kinds of substances and transformative experiences. It seems like we're always in a state of shared cognition, even when we believe that we're deciding things on our own, right? We have this belief like, I think this, I believe this. No, you don't. You you know, I who, first of all, you know, start there and then say, oh, and you of all people are are exempt from the conditioning of the world and everybody around you because you have such a powerful mind. Of course not, you know? So intentionally cultivating communitas is essential because otherwise yeah. you're just receiving this, you know, nascent, you know, communitas that's av- that's around the culture that's around without any intention, and you don't really know. You're not choosing the people around you that you have a this shared cognition with. That's very well said, and and my hope is that the the psychedelic renaissance is going to integrate properly with another renaissance that I'm involved in which is the whole renaissance around things like circling, authentic relating, uh, what a, a process I call uh, dialectic into dialogos. I've participated in this. And what's, and what's very powerful about these experiences, right, is so when you're like, for example, in a circling practice, people get a sense of the we space. They get a sense of a geist, a spirit. It's not reducible to any one of the people uh, that's somehow shared and or a logos that is unfolding itself and there and what's interesting over is how people from religious or non-religious backgrounds starting they start talking about this experience reverentially they start talking about it using spiritual or religious language because they're getting a sense i would say and, and i don't mean this in an explaining away i don't they're getting a sense of 
the collective intelligence that is available in distributed cognition and the potential for collective wisdom that is there. I mean, long, I've said this before, long before we networked computers together and released the power of distributed cognition, like the internet that we're relying on right now, human culture networked brains together to release the power of distributed cognition. That power is powerful and people rightly respond to it as, oh, and what's what's so interesting phenomenologically is people often realize, and this is so interesting, they realize a sense of, it's almost like a new taste. They realize a form of intimacy that they're not familiar with, but Mm. feels deeply at home. They say, Mm. I'm not, this is not romantic intimacy. It's not like friendship. It's more like the old Christian idea of fellowship, but they feel an intimacy with each other. People they've just met, right? And they feel an intimacy with the world and even with themselves. And they don't, they don't quite know how to classify this, but like if we could take that, that communitas, you know, uh, education and integrate it with these transformative experiences and then also integrate all of that with people doing, you know, more reflective practices like philosophical fellowship, et cetera. I think that would, we could get, we could give people reliable tools to have these experiences, situate them within a community and be able to reflect on them collectively and individually in a powerful way. So I'm very familiar with like the ayahuasca sharing circle and circling around transcendent experiences. This idea of circling and uh, it's it's dialogos is, is what yes, you're talking yes. about yes. In, in the kind of the utilization of it seems like some form of the Socratic method and some yep. some kind of yep. unique thing. Can you can you go into this? So let's say hypothetically, I wanted to get twelve of the, my brightest friends together and we wanted to do this. Uh, no entheogens involved. We wanted to do this this yeah, this way yeah. that we're talking about. Like, what does it look like? How do you prompt that? How do you get it going? Great, excellent question. And um, so, uh, I we we recently did um, a, a weekend workshop. Guy Senstock, the inventor of circling, and one of my deep friends and partners, Christopher Mastropietro. And we we t- you take people through a program. You take them through a pedagogical program. You can't just sort of blah, right, right, just jump in. You can't, it doesn't work. So I'll just quickly, what we did. Please. And what and the results. So you start with a basic meditative practice. You give people, because not everybody comes in with mindfulness and you have to have mindfulness for this to work, right? You give people, and so I took people through a meditative practice, a contemplative practice. Then you take people through some basic circling practices. Now the circling practices. Per let's se- just ba- let's just back up real quick. Yes. There's so many different types. What is your you're a long term med- long time meditator? Yes. You yes. take somebody who's novice. What is your meditation style that you recommend? And then let's go into the contemplation, some more specifics of contemplation. So real excellent, you know, excellent. pragmatic, excellent. So I mean, so the the meditative style, and I've been teaching meditation for like two decades, um, and I also published work on it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a bit of a privileged position. I both practice it and study it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's based on a Vipassana, but what I do for the uh, core, uh, for people who have, you know, because you only have like a couple of hours uh, right, in this workshop, is I teach them a, a centering practice where they're learning how to uh, first uh, center them, like actually center their posture, uh, so, you, you know, you move people, you get people to close their eyes, move backward and forwards until they feel centered sideways. So you learn, they learn to center and align, mm. right? 
And then you teach them how to center their attention. The metaphor I use, uh, uh, sort of become a bit of a meme, right? Is uh, so my glass, right now I'm looking through my glasses by means of them and beyond of them. They're literally framing my experience. <laughs> and sometimes what I need to do is I need to step back and look at my glasses rather than through them. Most of the time, this is what we're doing with our mind. We're looking mm. through it and there, and we are not therefore aware of how it's framing reality. Wow. So you t- teach people to step back and look at, for example, their sensations, look at their mental framing. So you teach them how to center their attention and then you teach them how to center their attitude. So the centering the attitude is, you've probably heard of the, you know, the mindful, the, the monkey mind, the thing that chatters and jumps around. You don't want to fight it. You don't want to feed it. You want to center your attitude. And so you don't fight it. You don't feed it. You learn how to befriend yourself. So the same attitude you would take to a friend that you're trying to teach and encourage, you take towards your meditative practice. So you center the mind-body posture. You center your attention. And then you center your attitude. And these three centers are just three different aspects of the same centering. That's what I do to take people through a basic practice. If you know, I've got a whole online course. I taught during COVID. I did it every day. I, I took people through that you after centering, you learn to root and to find your flow and find your focus. But if you give people the basic centering, that gives them enough. And the mm. centering is really important because people need something like that because they're going to be confronting a lot of new crap in the course and they've got to be able to okay return to your center return to your center return to your center so that's the meditative i'll I'll stop because i don't want to just give a speech i'll like if you want to ask any questions no i i love it and i love the idea that is so so valuable that thing you did with your glasses i understand why it's a meme i understand why you you know you you have put it on t-shirts because it's it's really important and it's it's great so thank you for sharing that and so that's the meditative practice. And so if you'll allow me to return to that metaphor, uh, sure. imagine if you wanted to clean your glasses, you need to do this and you might make a change, but how do you how do you tell if you've actually cleaned your glasses? We have to put them back on and see if you see differently into the world, <laughs> right? Yes. That's yes. contemplation. And that's what the word contemplation actually means. It's not a synonym for meditation. Uh, you can hear the word temple in contemplation. Temple means to look up to look up and out to the sky. The, the, the Latin word contemplatio is a translation of the Greek word theoria. We, we get our word theory from it. Theory, theoria means to look deeply out into reality. So while meditation is this, contemplation is this, right? And so you teach people a contemplative practice. And so the, the, the contemplative practice we teach for uh, the dialectic and the dialogus is it's drawn from the Neoplatonic tradition. Uh, so you basically what you get what you're getting people to do is to look at there's sort of co-determining levels of the psyche and reality. So realize that within you that is just sort of emerging and realize that that's also happening in reality. There's a sort of here nowness to you, and there's a here nowness to reality, and you get people to become aware of that. And then you get them to, so that's phusis, things bursting forth. And then you say, but notice there's there's a suke, a psyche of the phusis, because it's not just this, things are becoming determinate, They're, they're falling into patterns. Oh, right. There's a patterning and the patterning is within you and without you and between you and the world. And you get, and then you say, ah, but those patterns aren't just random. They, they, there's a patterning of the patterns and it forms a world. And that's like your, and you have an inner world that's your consciousness and it's, they're conforming and you get people to realize that. And you say, ah, but what's happening beyond that is there's a oneness 
that was making all that happen. There's a henosis and you experience the oneness and then, oh, and then and I notice that you're, it's not dependent on you. It's much more that you are dependent on it. And you take people through this, right? Where they're, they're learning to, and this goes back to the Neoplatonic tradition, they're learning to remember that there's an aspect of cognition and life that are about not representing the world, but conforming to it, sharing an identity with it, bonding to it. And you take, you talk people through this contemplative practice. So, so it they, almost seems like you're becoming aware of your per- perspectival bias. Ex- exactly. That's exactly right. And what you're doing is you're also like you're modeling how you're making sense and you are, and you're doing, you probably recognize this is also very similar to the stoic practice of the view from above by getting people to move to these more and not just moving out, but also tapping deeper into parts of their own psyche. Right. As you're mm-hmm. getting them to move to these more encompassing perspectives that allows them to see the limitations of the automatic and habitual limitations of lower order perspectives. Exactly. I love it. I love it. <laughs> this is great. All right. Next step. So after you do that, then what you do is Guy Senstock, um, dear friend of mine, um, you, you take people through some basic circling practices. So in circling, what you're doing is you're trying to do you're trying to do two things at once. Uh, it's very similar to Tai Chi Chuan. In Tai Chi Chuan, you talk about sort of the two eyeballs. That you're sort of trying to get as mindful within, as mindful as without, and like stereoscopic vision. You know the way the left and the right fields fuse, and you see a depth. Mm. You're trying to get the within and the without, and you're doing the same thing in circling. So what you're doing is you're trying to be very mindful of yourself but as a way of, of being mindful of the other person. And what you get is what Goldman calls mindsight resonance. Like if you're very mindful of me and you're being very mindful of someone else, you can actually make yourself more in, like you can sort of change your behavior, even facially so that I, it's easier for me to pick up on you. And then as I pick up on you, I go, Oh, and then I can change myself so that you can more pick up on me and we can loop like this, we can get into this mindset resonance. And so what you do is, and it's a conversational practice, but you, you're not using conversation to convert people. You're not using conversation to inform people. You're using conversation to commune and create these mind, this mindset resonance, this looping. That's part of why the intimacy, I think, emerges. Because if you look at Aaron's work, that's a last name, not a first name, right? The way you get people to fall in love, not necessarily romantic, but friendship is mutually accelerating disclosure. Mutually accelerating uh, disclosure. If I disclose yeah, something about me, yeah. so and then you respond by disclosing, and we keep doing that, that's what circling does, right? And people, and it's it's really interesting because, like I said, people discover this new kind of intimacy, and it's and it's fair to say it's not even just a new kind of intimacy with other people. It's a new kind of intimacy with themselves. Like they they, it's it's so odd. It's almost paradoxical. It's simultaneously new, and this is how it always should have been kind of of course the way people talk about it of course so i'm i'm a little bit i'm a little bit lost as to what i mean are you posing a question like a jeffersonian dialogue no, so or picking a subject no no not initially for the circling practices you'll do things that are initially just for the sole purpose of setting up this resonance so i'll say things like if you and i will face each other and i'll say being here i notice about you that you're a little you're a little curious and then you'll say, being here, and you can either report yourself, being here, I 
being here, I respond to that. This is, or being here, I notice about you. And then you do these things like that and you get into sequence. And then what you do is you compare, you, you, uh, like you, you add more and more complexity, more and more dimensionality to the way in which you're showing up and, and you're, you know, the, the original meaning of education, adduce, draw out, you're, draw, you're drawing each other out in this mutually affording fashion. And so people learn to generate, this is, this, this is what I, I'm, I'm published, I've published on, they, you learn to generate collective flow as opposed to individual flow. You learn to get into the flow state coupled to somebody rather than just on your own, you know, rock climbing or, or, or playing a video game. And so that's what's happening with people. They're getting to the, the shared flow state. When you say, you know, mutually accelerating disclosure, is there a point where you flip it and you start talking about yourself with the other person? Be, you'll do both. You'll, you'll, you'll do, do both. both. You'll do both. Yeah. That's why I said, even in the exercise, you can report what's happening in you, like as a, but you, 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 you do it as in, 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 like, you don't do it in a monologic fashion. So if, let's say you notice something about me. You say, oh, John, I noticed that you're sort of high. I noticed that there's, I noticed that there's a lot of joy that you have <laughs> yeah. that's, that's inside of you. So what I can say, but directed towards you is, and that just made me feel safer. And I felt that really here. And how are, and yeah. then you can see how you're picking up on that, and you yes, you just nodded. You're, sure. you're resonating with it, right? So I can I can. So I, I can, would say something like, "It's beautiful to see you draw that into your heart, and as you draw that into your heart, it awakens my own heart even more." Right, and when you said that, and I, as I felt you moving into the pause, I actually felt this expansive possibility just open up between us. Yeah, amazing. I mean, this is this is incredible. I mean, I run different groups of masterminds and fellowships sometimes informally one is is formal it's called fit for service and we do a lot of these you know yeah. disclosures and vulnerable sharing and circling but this structure is is just so incredibly valuable i'm just really in a lot of gratitude that i'm i'm learning it so please let's keep going and uh, and let's <laughs> let's uh let's i want to learn more so so and throughout you also remind people you remind them like because mindfulness, like bring it, make sure you remain centered, right? Make, make sure when you're doing this, right? Especially some of the later practices, don't stay on just one level. Remember the levels that you saw in, in the contemplative practice. Don't just stay on one level, right? So you're giving people, you're, 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 you're reminding them to explore the dimensionality of this and not just, right? Stay at this one level. So after you've done the circling, you take them into a practice called philosophical fellowship. This is a practice I've derived with uh, with the help of Chris and other people, and um, it's based on Rand Lahav's work on uh, what he calls philosophical contemplative companionships. He 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 emailed me, and so we're we're on good terms about this. He doesn't feel mm -hmm. like I'm stepping on his toes or anything. Mm -hmm. So what happens in philosophical fellowship is you'll so now so and this is something that Guy and I've talked about. So. Uh, Guy and I, you know, the word philosophy comes from philia, right? Love and Sophia, yeah. right? And, and so the circling, all the stuff, the, 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 the meditation, the contemplation, the circling really gets philia going. But then you want to get the philia directed onto Sophia. So now you mm -hmm. move into philosophical fellowship. What does that look like? So what you do is you get a group of four people. Four is a really good number for a lot of these things. You see a lot of traditions converging on it. And what you do is you pick a text and, 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 you know, and you have to give some people guidance initially. 
for this, we actually had pre-selected a bunch of texts, a philosophical text. Now, one person will read it, but you read it in you read it in a fashion that's called lexio divina. You don't read it just to inform. You read it very slowly, and people are supposed to and they're supposed to try and do with the text what they've been learning to do with each other in the circling. They're not just trying to get the information. They're trying to resonate. They're trying to open up the text and let the text open them up. And so what you, what you explicitly say to them is try, you're trying to invoke the perspectival presence of this wise author. You're not just trying to get the information. Let's say you were doing Augustine. You're trying to presence Augustine, right? And, and the way a child is presencing an adult or the adult is presencing a sage. So you, you read it slowly like that. And then you do, you do a philosophical chanting. The reader picks one phrase that really grabbed them. And then you, people, they chant it in the circle. They chant it and they chant it in this resonant fashion. Then you move into what's called precious speaking. And wait, just so with the chanting, is everybody yeah. chanting it in the same way? Give me, give me an example of what the chanting looks like. Uh, so, you know, you know, Spinoza said, only in God's being do we find happiness. And then the next person will say, only in God's being do we find happiness. And you let people chant to whatever degree they want. This isn't a musical competition. Some people, <laughs> some people yeah. just speak. Some people are more chanty, and that's fine, right? But what happens is you circulate it around, and you get, you get the circling effect because people are tuned into each other, but uh -huh. they're also resonating with this particular phrase. And that phrase is like a doorway into the depths of the text. Because now what people then do is they move to what's called precious speaking. And this is really interesting. What you have to do with precious speaking is try to convey as much as you can with as few words as possible, like a sentence or two max about what you're, how you, what's being provoked, evoked, and invoked by you when you hear this passage by Augustine or Spinoza. And, and then what people do is they'll, you go, you, you, you cycle that and people do these and, and you can imagine how they jazz off of each other because they can't blah, 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 monologue. They they yeah. they do this. They do these pregnant, you know, pronouncements and then pregnant pronouncements, and everybody starts to, and people start to get a sense. Like people will start to say, "I kind of feel like Spinoza's here," and I kind of feel like Spinoza's here. And then you move into conversation where people are allowed to say four to five sentences, and then it just keeps circling, and you find people. And they don't have to have a philosophical background. They start to deeply appreciate that this, I don't know what to call it, this existential spiritual confrontation with the possibility of wisdom. Hmm. I love it. I really, I really love it. I'm, and I can see how this could work with philosophical texts. It could work with spiritual texts. It could work very with much. poetry. You know, very, much. very much so yeah, as well. Very, very much. Yeah, for great poetry will do it too. When I teach people Lexio Divina, I often recommend that they should do both a poetry reading and a prose reading. So that's that's philosophical fellowship. And then the last thing is dialectic into dialogos. Um, so now they're ready to try the more Socratic, directly Socratic practice. And so what that looks like is again, I'm literally giddy right now, I'm literally, <laughs> literally giddy, but please continue. Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, so what you do in, uh, so the, the, just to be clear why I use the somewhat awkward phrase, dialectic is something you can practice. Dialogos is something that you can only participate in, right? Mm. Let me give you an analogy. I can teach you things that will make you better 
at getting into a good conversation. But I can't teach you the art of like, do this and I guarantee you'll be in a good conversation because a good conversation has to have a life of its own. It has to have a logos of its own. So the point, and so the point is for people, they do this practice, but what it does is it's only to afford this, right? This sense of the, the, the logos. And I'll talk a little bit what that means in a sec. So you bring people in and you, you follow, you follow the, the Socratic platonic model. What we're going to do a topic. You're going to bring all this machinery, mindfulness and circling and uh, the sense of Sophia, uh, wisdom, philosophical right engagement, and you're going to bring it in, and now you're going to do it with each other. And the topic is going to be like it always is, and there's very good reason for this. It's going to be a virtue. Because hmm. the thing about a virtue is it, it's both philosophical, but it's personal. So, and you and so you say, so the first person is going to pick, pick a virtue. Let's say it's honesty, and then what they're going to do is they're going to say. They're not going to state a third person definition, blah, 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 proposition. They're going to say, I propose that honesty is this. There's the next person in, in the line, their job is to draw them out and say, and in, in, in multiple ways, they can ask them a question. Can you say a little bit more? Or they can note back to them. I noticed when you were talking about honesty, you, you, you made a fist. Go back and make a fist. What, what's going on there when you make a fist, when you're telling me what honesty is? Right. And so you get people, to, you, what you're doing is acting like a Socratic mirror and getting people to go deeper. Would you and, mind if we do it with sure. honesty? Sure. Okay. Well, just do, you don't have to go. I don't know. This might be a long process, but we'll just go a little bit. So you started off. So you, you would say, you know, I propose that the virtue we're going to talk about is honesty. Honesty. As, right. Are you going to question me or do you want me to question you? Want, me? Well, you question me. You're the leader of this, yeah, this yeah. exercise here. So, so pick, yeah. So what, what I would say is, can you give me a proposal as to, and so what, what, let's give a little bit of background. You'll have been instructed. Don't just monologue, pause periodically. So I can have a space to interact with you, ask you questions. Both people should as much as possible avoid going off into, you know, sort of masturbating their autobiographies. All right. right. Okay. Try to stay on the joint project of disclosing what this particular virtue is. Okay. Honesty, I propose that honesty is the authentic expression of your being beyond words. So I noticed when you were doing that, that your hand would go like this, and then like this, and then like this, and then like this. What was going on when you were doing that? As I expanded my hand, I was indicating that there was an expansiveness to the honesty, a more holisticness to the honesty. And as I contracted my hand, I was referring to the condensation of something into a word, which I believe and propose is always a little bit of a, a little bit of a miss, a, a sin, a missing the mark to mm. honesty itself that's very interesting so what is the what are you feeling is the relationship then between the expanse and the narrowing can you can you unfold that for me a little and what does that tell us about honesty the way so i'm asking you not just to tell me what what your mind is thinking about honesty 
but how your mind is thinking about honesty, mm. how you might even be exemplifying honesty. Can you, can you, so what's going on there? Can you unpack that a little bit more, please? Honesty to me has to be felt in a way that's beyond just the reduction to a single sense, mm. the reduction mm. to what we would ascribe to the mind. It has to be felt with both heart resonance it has to be felt through the emotional body it has to be absorbed through the intellect and it has to be coherent with all of these different all of these different things to be truly honest it has to encompass a more holistic view of our totality that's very interesting because I noticed your gesturing changed its dimensionality. Your hand became like this. Your arm became very vertical. <laughs> it kept moving much more up and down and, and looping like this. So what? So what were you conveying? So I, you're 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 now adding sort of complexity in a revealing manner to the dimensionality of honesty. What was the up down and the looping? What was going on there? I believe that we're multi-dimensional selves mm. that our self cannot be condensed and identified on one you know loca of consciousness existence it's it's far larger and more encompassing than we normally attribute and so to be honest you have to account for the complexity and the robustness of the totality of who we are as this multi-dimensional consciousness as an expression of the mind of god itself so that's really interesting so <clears throat> it, it, now i might not be understanding you but let me let me see it sounds like there's honesty is some way in some way connecting it's like a through line in all mm. this dimensionality what does that through line feel like how is it different than for example another virtue perhaps like kindness like what's that through line through that dimensionality that makes it honesty as opposed to kindness i haven't thought through all of the other virtues in this way however when you say kindness my instinct is to say that kindness is exactly the same that mm -hmm. kindness must also encompass the entirety and the totality of who we are to truly be kind other than being transactional other than being self-serving other than being some idea that we're being a good boy or a good girl and we're doing this it has to be authentic from all levels heart mind spirit and all our dimensional reality so what i'm hearing you say is that both honesty and kindness insofar as their virtues are doing this you know pan-dimensional multi-dimensional integration what makes them different then? Because remember, you you did this. <laughs> honesty can be... Honesty is kind, but it's only always kind on the broadest expanse and mm. in the broadest context because there's certain timing and there's certain acknowledgement of the other person that might mean that honesty may not be kind in a certain situation for example someone is already having a very difficult time and you have a, another very difficult thing to express to stack them too close would violate not violate but it would it would uh be 
it wouldn't be helpful to their pacing and calibration, their ability to absorb. So there's a way in which kindness can actually shield temporarily, and it must be temporarily, but shield certain expressions of honesty to give people time to assimilate and and uh, to assimilate what you're saying. That's amazing. So you're talking now, and your hands are doing the 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 this gesture of coordination and resonance. So you're saying there's a there's difference. There's perhaps I've heard you saying something like there's maybe a risk to honesty, mm-hmm. uh, and that kindness and honesty are now sort of counterbalancing each other. Is there also the reverse? Is there does kindness need honesty as much as honesty needs kindness? Kindness needs the honesty of the heart and it needs the honesty of intention always Mm. it cannot exist without honesty of the heart and honesty of your intention it can it can withhold the honesty of factual expression or opinionated expression of a certain topic so now, and now we, you know, you, we're going to do it. We've done it for almost about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. All of this now said, in no more than a sentence or two, what's honesty? Honesty f- is, is a form of love. Mm. That's different from where you were when you started. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so that's what it looks like. It's amazing. I love it. And so, and then what happens next is I would say to you, right, this is what I I was doing it throughout, but I would say to you, this is what I heard you saying. This is, and I would, I would say this back to you until you agree that I have understood you. I would say Mm -hmm. what I heard you saying, right, was honesty was, uh, you know, a way of being authentic but in a multi-dimensional fashion uh, that encompassed a lot of the different facets and aspect of a human being. And honesty is also part of what it is to be honest is to be in relationship to other virtues in a coordinated manner. I was hearing you say all of this, and that's why you summed it up in something that's very comprehensive like that, like love. Did I understand you? You understood me. Okay. Yeah. So then, right. Once I, once you, I get the acknowledgement, then I would, uh, I would say, here's what I learned. I hadn't thought about honesty in that sort of multi-dimensional way that you articulated. That was very insightful. Um, then I might say uh, what I found mysterious. I got a sense of mystery towards the end because this, and you, you started it from the very beginning with the sort of expansiveness and somehow it goes out like this and, and comes in like this, but that expanse got really big for me. And that was the mystery. And there was, and there was times when you were falling into silence because I could tell you were stepping back and trying to, I got to try and see what's going on here. <laughs> and, then, and then I would also say what I thought might be missing. What, what, and I'd say, for me, one of the things I thought was missing from this was the relationship between honesty and truth. For me, that's an important thing. And mm. then, I would do, then I would do this. I would, I would turn to the next person and I would make use of everything that I've, had with you 
but I would book, I would build on it by bringing in what I thought was missing, try to go deeper into the mystery. I'd say all of that multidimensionality, but for me, honesty also has to involve the truth in some important way. And then the, the next person in the, in the, in the quartet would do with me what I just did with you. And then you circle all the way around. And so for people who want to really dive in and learn how to do this, this is a great like initial, initial kind of explication and understanding of how to do this. But you have a, you have a, a platform, a, a way that you're teaching people how to do this? So, I mean, we, we've done the workshop and we're going to do it more. I'm actually um, in the process of trying to get properly certified in circling. There are sort of some legal issues. I mean, Guy and I are working together. Not You're certified. <laughs> I certify you myself. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we, like I said, we're going to do more workshops and I would invite people to come to them. Uh, we do them virtually and we might do some in person. Um, there's a book that Chris and I edited, uh, Chris Master Pietro and I edited, and we both contributed to, to called Inner and Outer Dialogues, where I give the background of dialectic into Dialogos, the historical philosophical background, and then lay out this program. Um, so there are, I mean, this is very much a work in progress. This is what this is this is sort of the cutting edge of what I've been trying to do in responding to the meaning crisis. Um, so this is this has been sort of something basically since the series came out in 2019 this is what i've been d- diving into both theoretically academic and you know theoretically academically and you know practically and, and and existentially this is the cutting edge of what i'm trying to uh get people uh engaged in and and, and there's other things you can and there's other practices i am not i'm not claiming that dialectic into dialogos is exclusive there's many other practices right there's inquiry there's 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 buddhist dialogue and, the, and there's families and we and they can be properly coordinated. Also, there are practices like Edwin Roish's uh, empathy circling that you use when people are much more confrontational to get them into a shared space so that they can then move through this program that I just took you through quickly. Well, let's so go. Let's go there because, you know, there's uh, I mean, I, I do want to say that it's really interesting. We'll go back to this later. But you said that. um there's the necessity for keeping the logos coherent with agape, like, mm-hmm. and, yes. and this is what kind of naturally emerged, and agape being love, yeah. that's kind of what naturally emerged in that last question, which I think yeah. was really interesting yeah. because I wasn't thinking about that, the thing that, that thing that you mentioned until that actually became emergent out of that thing. Like, oh, I get it. There, yeah. it has to be love, you know. That's that's yeah. tied into this. And this is the thing. So you move between theory and theoria. You move from and you move it properly, right? You move between theory in which you're proposing and it's legitimate, and theoria in which you're trying to see how is honesty actually showing up here. How is how am I exemplifying it instead of just talking about it? How am I actually engaged in? Because that's what you were doing. You're trying to what's it like to be honest? You're trying to do the whole perspectival participatory thing, and and so yeah, very much. And, and and the logos, right? The logos is notice how, right? I did I didn't I couldn't predict how that was going to go. I didn't have a script, right? It's it, it's it's this own thing that starts to emerge, and things start to emerge in you, and things start to emerge in me, and things start to emerge between us, and all those are completely interpenetrating forms of emergence, and they are unpacking the intelligibility of something fundamental like honesty. That's the logos. And properly coordinated with agape, like you just said. So logos, you know, which 
uh, is a biblical reference and it's, it's talking, well, let me, I'll have you describe Logos, but it seems to me the point that I'm making is, you know, that Logos seems to be something that you will re- will reliably emerge from this, from this, you know, this process where that in many different ways, this, you will arrive at this place if you do it with enough earnest and, and with the right intention that you'll arrive reliably at at logos and that's what makes it logos it's something that's not just in your own in your own individual perspective it's something that multiple people could arrive at very much and that's what i meant at the beginning when i said there's dialectic there's things i can teach you as a practice but i can't i can't make the logos the logos has to appear of its own accord or it's not the logos right and so, so define define logos for us sure quick. so i mean uh Logos goes back before the Christian tradition. It goes into the Socratic, Platonic, even the ancient uh, Greek philosophical tradition. Uh, Heraclitus uh, famously said things like, don't listen to my words, but listen to the Logos. Logos originally meant to gather things together so they belong together. But it's also the etymological origin of our word logic. And notice, like, notice how much journeying it goes on between those two. And so the reason that I use logos is because it has the ordering of intelligibility that we convey with logic, but it also has this gathering together so things belong together in this dynamic fashion. That's logos. It's also the root of our word, like when we put ology at the end of anything, uh, mm-hmm. like you know, uh, you know, anthropology, the logos of the anthropos, right? It's it's this involvement, and so, and it also means speech it means reason it means formative principle the 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 clearest translation from another culture and another language for logos would be dharma how it conveys a reality a structure a way of thinking a way of being right it's all of that and it's fundamental uh, to dia logos by means of the logos And, and part of the proposal here is that we have lost the capacity for dia logos because we have reduced it or replaced it to debate and debate and debate has been reduced to zero sum game uh, argumentation. And so we have lost the capacity for dialogos in, in, in a kind of truncation process that has happened historically. Well, that's a perfect segue to how to do this because this seems like a practice you get, you know, some people who are already very allied and willing to go there. But what we find in the world now is a lot of, heated emotional arguments that are very difficult to reconcile so what do you, what is your suggestion both if you have somebody at a you know who is on very different sides of a particular issue that you want to bring together and have this discussion and then also just dealing with the more general problem of okay you have somebody maybe online you have somebody who at once no part of going through a meditation and a contemplation and doing all of this with you what is the best way to interact with them that's actually going to be productive to you know actually finding meaning and, and making sense and coming to common ground so one of the things you can do it, it, well there's sort of three things one thing you can do and this is uh, a practice that my uh, friend and, and colleague Peter Lindbergh talks about is you can see if the person is willing to engage in anti-debate. Um, so <laughs> anti-debate is, well, 
before we debate this, let's make sure we understand each other. And, the, and now the competition will be who understands the other person better. Before we get to who wins, let's do who understands the other person better. So you're going to state your position and I'm going to understand you. And then you're going to see if you understand. And, and, and that will generally move people to a different position. The next thing, and this is drawn from, uh, oh, his, his name just escapes me. He wrote the, the knowledge illusion. Um, this is some of the, what you can get people. So if you get people to state their position about a topic, they will polarize reliably. If you, so you can do that. Like he did this for something like healthcare, right? Oh, well, well should, free healthcare. And you get people and then you say, well, wait, before we do our positions, can somebody explain to me how healthcare actually works? Can you and I figure out, and people go, what, what? Like, but how does it work? Um, well, let's try and help each other. Like, let's maybe, and when you get people to try and explain the mechanism of a phenomena, they will, they will start to move towards consensus. If you get them to state their positions or valuing of the phenomena, they will polarize. You can also do what's called empathy circling. Empathy circling is a little bit like that thing we did in the end, right? Where what I'm, what I'm trying to do is you will state your position. And, and Edwin Roche did this with like sort of vociferous Republicans and Democrats. And then I, I, I uh, right, you state your position and I have to say to you how I understood you. But I say it to another person in the in, in the in the circle of four, and then they have to say, right. And what happens is nobody gets to defend their position. Everybody is caught up in tr in, in the project of understanding everybody else, and it constantly is moving around in an unpredictable fashion. And what happens is people start to move towards, oh, you're not the evil bastard I thought you were, <laughs> right? You have a life, right? right? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not proposing that this is like, oh, well, you know, do these three things and people will just naturally start singing Kumbaya. I mean, there's gonna, I, I, like, I, there's no protection against bad faith actors, right? Or things like that. Uh, but if people have enough good faith in them to do these, those kinds of things in good faith, you can often get them to a place where they might consider this more developed program. The other thing you have to do, and I thank you for affording this, is you have to expose people to the beauty of this program so they might move from, oh, wait, I get, I'm getting a taste of that. Oh, now I see where that might go. And so you, you do this sort of two-pronged strategy. Beautiful. Uh, the second, I understand the first, who understands me better. I understand the empathy circling. That That's pretty clear. I understand in your specific example about healthcare, understanding the mechanism of healthcare, but just trying to figure out what that question is. So let's take some actual debates that are raging sure. right now. There's the people who are very pro-vax, vax for everybody, vax mandates. This is what everybody should do. Doesn't matter, you know, like doesn't matter your own personal story. Everybody needs to do this. And other people are saying, no, this should be a sovereign choice. You know, this is something that every individual should decide for themselves. I'm not talking about the extreme conspiracy side, like no. uh, the the cabal is doing, and blah blah blah. I'm just saying that health sovereignty and the ability to choose for yourself sure. whether you take it, and then the idea that no, everybody should take it. This is our social contract or social responsibility. So you have that topic, which is yes. a, a hot debate. So what would be the mechanism question that you would ask? Would it be how does okay, a vaccine what is work it? in your body? How does a vaccine work in your body? Uh huh. How does it work in your body? Yeah. And is it a violation of your sovereignty, or is it actually your body 
acting in a highly sovereign manner. Are we clear about this? Do we know how it works? Right. So you open up, what's the mechanism? And is it tied as directly to the things you think it is? Get people to talk about it that way. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like people will try to people will try to throw in their opinion. They will into into, into all of this, especially yeah. like I think one and three, one and three seem like we can keep those pretty clean. But it seems like two is going to get messy because people yeah. are not going to be able to yeah. have the be able to withhold and resist yeah. putting in some digs. Well, I mean, and people, uh, yeah, and that's why I wanted to put the caution. Even in the thing I took you through, even when people are good faith really good faith you gotta so right it's still hard for people for example to not get into autobiography even though you caution them you tell them no you're 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 in service of the person who's talking they'll start to start to spin their autobiography they'll say why are you doing that right, <laughs> right? Like, step aside right and so i agree with you uh, and so Again, I, 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 I want to be cautious about what I'm claiming. I think if you are trying to get people, so to speak, off the street that aren't already religiously committed to a position, if I can put it that way, then you'd, you'd have to flexibly move between all three of those in some fashion. Like you might try the, you might try the, the mechanism, and then as it gets there, you say, wait, 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 we're getting bogged up. Let's do the empathy circling to see if we're really understanding each other or talking uh, uh, past each other, or perhaps we're we're starting to get entrenched. Let's try the anti-debate uh, to loosen things up again. Uh, and and part of the thing we need, and this is what's hard and sort of on the street. But all, although people are trying to do it with street epistemologies, you need people who are willing to say, "I'm not going to take a position here. I'm going to try and facilitate your discussion. Do, are you both happy with that? And I'm going to and I'm going to really like really try my best uh, to do that." Uh, and so um, that's also something that exists in other cultures, mm, right? Yeah, but, like media, it's, it's a type of mediation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it's not, it's, not, it's not anything impossible to human beings. It's going to be difficult in our culture. But we're yeah. talking about it, it, is the difficulty in the practice or in the culture's capacity to adopt the practice. So those, those are two different problems. Right, and the the way you address the second is what we're doing here. You, you try to educate people. You try to exemplify. You try and you know do not take this the wrong way. Anybody who's listening, but Plato talked about you know you have to sort of seduce people into this. You have to see how beautiful it is. Get draw them in, and and so you do. I you do this with meditation. People come in and you say, "Why are you meditating?" And they'll give you you know X Y Z. I want to relax. I want to be like. And you say, "Okay." And you do this, but you try and show them. So that by the time they get to the end of the meditation course, their reasons for meditating are very different from the reasons they started. And yeah, you're doing this. You're doing a similar thing. One of the beautiful things that's emergent from this process, and it's something that you talk about, is you're creating a, a flow state uh, yes. between between the the different individuals. And I so I'm just going to put a little footnote there that we're going back to that. But I want to just continue with this and see what your thoughts are. This is obviously a great pro great process for a small group. Is there a way to do this in a larger format? So, yeah. you know, for example, you know, I made a, an Instagram post yesterday talking about unifying polarity by having reverence for both sides while still holding your opinion, right? And then a lot of people got it. A lot of people loved it. It reached half a million people and it was wow. a powerful post. But there was also a lot of people who then came in and say, you know, 
fuck your opinion this is yeah. right this is truth you know blah 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 yeah but with this do you think there's a way to do this in mass where you kind of set the premise for this and say look we're going to collectively have an and there will be people who just don't do it but but we're collectively going to have an anti-debate where we're trying to understand this one position first and then tomorrow we'll try to understand this other position we'll try to understand everybody's position and in this thing you know is there a way to like do this at scale okay so like there's a middle answer to that. Uh, so I, I, there's a final stage, by the way, uh, in, that, in, the, in the program. All the little groups come together. And, but you need a, 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 like all, so you have a whole bunch of groups of four, right? And then they all come together and, let's, and they've all done different, for example, different virtues. This is just one example. It can go different ways. And then I will say, let's have a, a discussion. And people are all in, they're all in this charged state. So they're ready for it. I'll say, Using what happened in your group, but listening to the other groups, let's not ask the question, what's honesty or kindness? Let's ask together the question, what is virtue? And then what happens is the various groups, like the people from various groups start talking to each other and you get this group dialogos thing that takes shape. Mm. People are going, right? So you can do that. The other thing you can do and... um, I don't have any direct experience of this, but I've talked to her. Nora Bateson has the Warm Data Labs. Warm Data Labs is you have you have this ongoing. You have a whole bunch of groups of four, and people are doing something similar to what I just took you through. But what happens is one person gets up from there and goes to another group, and then this person gets up and goes to another group, and so people are moving between the group, and the groups are constantly reconfiguring slowly, and they're and they're inseminating and pollinating each other. And, 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 and it, it, it dynamically, it keeps, it keeps doing like shrinking to the, the, the group of four and then expanding mm. out and people get this sort of almost like a musicality to it. And I think it's possible, by the way, to integrate the two things together that I just mentioned. Now, what I can't tell you, because I don't know, <laughs> I'm just ignorant, is how you could get that beyond like, you know, 80 to 100 yeah. people. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's so much even in our own little experiment and discussion. Honesty is a requisite of my version of honesty, and and yeah. and also receipt and intimacy is really tuning into the whole person holistically. I mean, we were actually we're actually limited by the just having the screens, yes. you know, and not actually being able to be directly in the field. But you know, we we got we got it there pretty good, and at least that we're looking at each other and we have yeah. live <laughs> feeds. You know, we can pick up cues in that way uh it, it's definitely harder um uh, it's definitely harder to do but i don't know i i think and we can take this maybe and if if you'll uh afford me maybe i'll reach out to you and talk about as i tried this experiment and uh just keep you appraised of like how we could do this experiment on a larger scale and just give you the results of like all right how does this how does yeah. this play out please please very much one thing one thing that i uh, uh, i would want not want to know one thing I would want to know, sorry, I stumbled on my speech there. I, I strongly suspect this cannot be done by, by text. I strongly suspect that this needs um, the dynamic uh, the, the, the mm. dynamic looping of spoken. I mean, and this is something Plato uh, articulates, so it puts into the mouth of Socrates to say. Um, uh, because notice how I was not focusing just on the content of what you said, but all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Very, very hard. 
I don't, we don't have in, 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 in the way we do punctuation. We don't, well, well, we can put in emojis. Yeah. Try that. Right. So try to have a really emotionally serious conversation only using text and emoji. It will go awry almost all the time. Right. Um, and so I don't think we have in text what we need to do, right. That you know, when we're trying to yeah. commune with each other, not just communicate. So maybe a, a, a telegram group where you can put videos or, uh, yeah. Something you know, like some that. other thing, something like that. All right. Well, we'll figure out the logistics of that. Uh, and I'll, we'll, I'll keep in touch and let you know. I want to talk just briefly about this idea of one of the ways to get into flow, because a lot of times we think of flow, oh, flow, surfing, you know, yeah. got it, you know, like risk and waves. Yeah. And and you made a distinction that I thought was cool between hot flow, which I yeah. guess that would be a, a considered hot flow. You're in an, in an intense activity and cool flow, which is yeah. what's developing in these kind of conversational dialectics. Yeah, yeah. So uh, hot flow is the prototypical one that people uh, think about. And, you know, Csikszentmihalyi, most of his examples, but not all of them are hot flow. And, and what I mean by hot flow is, you know, you've got to, you, you feel like your mind, and I don't, I don't mean this in the negative sense, but you feel like your mind is racing, but, but like you're running a race, you know, in an articulate elegant fashion I, I don't mean like the racing like when we talk like when we're nervous i'm not talking about that but you feel like your mind is like really running if i could put it that way it's like right mm. um but there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a kind of flow and for me this became very apparent you know when i was doing when i do touch each one I, i'm clearly in the flow state but i'm not my that's not happening i'm not am i and i'm also not sort of metabolically like on fire but I'm, I'm, and that's the whole point. <laughs> Taoism is the religion of flow. And that's the whole point of doing, uh, you know, things like Tai Chi Chuan is to get into the flow state. And so you can, yeah, you can, you can get into this where you're, you're getting a lot of the features of the flow state, the sense of at one mint, the sense of super salience, uh, the sense of, of grace, you know, a lot of the features that Csikszentmihalyi talks about, the, the loss of the nattering, you know, narrative uh, ego. How am I doing? How do I look? What are people thinking about me? Right. That all of that can go away, but you don't have to be, you don't have to be necessarily on fire. Uh, please don't misunderstand me that that's a legitimate version of flow, but in cool flow, you, and I, and, you know, you, you, you get this in different martial arts. They'll tend to emphasize the cool flow rather than the hot flow. There's even, you know, distinction between different types of jazz playing where you're playing cool rather than hot and, and um, similar things. So, the emphasis isn't so much on, <clears throat> I, I want to be really careful here. In both of them, all of these things are shared. The at one mint, the grace, the sense of presence, the loss of, uh, of that nattering self-consciousness, um, the ongoing sense of discovery, but it can, it can either be you're on fire Right. And I'm trying to get, I'm trying to think of some language where, but, but, you know, I'm trying to convey it with this sense of cool, where you're really cool mm. and you're really just, you really, you really sort of found the groove and you're just, right. Um, it's also, it's much, seems much more sustainable, you know, like this, the hot flow is, it seems, it's very, it's much more temporary when you're in that. Yeah. It's almost like you, you can't, you can't burn at that heat for that long. Until yeah. it can it can go from hot into cool where you just you yeah. know you get yeah. you reach this peak and then you settle into this nice comfortable like here we are but it it seems like the that moment where everything just dissipates and it's just you radically in the present 
it only it has a usually a shorter expiry and then you can transition into a cooler flow yeah and you and and i think you're right and of course you can get the the cool flow in doing things like tai chi chuan or certain meditative practices or contemplative practices um and or even in even in surfing the, the hot flow might be when you're paddling and you're dropping into the wave and you're right there in that yeah. moment that's hot but the whole time you're just on your board the sun is the sun is rising yeah. Yeah. you're yeah. in the water you yeah. know it's yeah. just exactly that yeah 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 and i suspect that the cool flow i think there's a pedagogical relation i i'm not I, I like I'm trying to state this very cautiously because this is just a suspicion, right? That moving, being able to move from the hot flow to the cold, the cool flow helps you to move to, you know, almost something like, uh, you know, Stephen Batcher thought that uh, the Buddha's enlightenment was kind of a, a comprehensive flow state, right? That, right, and obviously that would that would even have to be something beyond just in cool flow. It'd be something a little bit beyond but that movement i'm suggesting and i'm only suggesting like because a lot more work needs to be done but i'm suggesting that that when you take a step from oh this is how i can go from a hot flow into cool flow that starts to scaffold you from this is how i can go from cool flow into life flow mm -hmm. um and that's that's a possibility that um well i think people should consider myself included and trying to so one of one of the things that i've found especially conversationally so i was in a polyamorous relationship for close to eight years mm. and one of the things that reliably gets you into flow is the novelty of uh the first few dates that you're with yeah, somebody yeah. new right yeah. there's this novelty like you don't think about your phone you don't think about any other thing you're in rapturous attention to their story, you know, their autobiographical, autobiographical story, whatever that is, you're yeah. right there with them. And then you're sharing, you know, for the first time your stuff, which is not, and it drives you. And I think that's one of the things that people love so much about that is yeah. it's not so much the other person. It's the fact that the interaction with that other person is driving you into a flow state because you're present. It's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. oh, now I'm really present because of these other factors. Yes. And in, in a relationship with someone that you've been with a long time now, I'm in a monogamous marriage with my wife and I'm so happy and I, and I love her, but there's, we have to create situations that actually provide some novelty. And I yes. think with a little bit more intention about that. And so I, I guess I would love your comment on novelty in general as a cool flow trigger. And cause it can create this sense also novelty and environment you know yeah. you're in a new place you get the sense of wonder and awe which is correlated with this or novelty with the person and this new intimacy but you can still create that with the same person but you, it has to be a little bit more intentional it's not just going to be situational it's going to have to be more intentional to get to those states yeah just like we did with our conversation right like exactly. having that type of conversation with your closest friend all of a sudden it's novel and all of a sudden you're right there in it that's exactly right. Um, I, I think you answered your own question, but let me let right. me, let me <laughs> right. comment on it. Um, um, I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty convinced of the of, of the hypothesis that the reason why some of our functioning is conscious as opposed to most of our functioning, which is unconscious and intelligent, but the reason why we have conscious functioning is that consciousness is about dealing with novelty complexity and ill-defined as opposed to well-defined problems. And so the degree to which uh, you can 
bring those features into any situation is the degree to which you're going to start engaging consciousness, that sense of being present. Uh, so I think that that that's very reasonable. But I think there's also something, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, there's also something, and, and you can see this in things like Buddhism or Taoism, uh, the mystical a- aspects of Sufism, or, 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 well, Sufism as a whole is mystical, uh, uh, mystical, uh, you know, traditions within Christianity, for example, is coming to a place where you realize that everything, and, I, and saying this as a sentence is easy, but that's not the point. You realize that everything is ultimately complex and ill-defined and novel to you, even the most familiar of objects. Um, and getting to a place, and this is, I think this is properly a virtue that has to yeah. be cultivated. I think this yeah. is what reverence is about. So that you you can come into a room and know that, that there's a titan, there's a combinatorial explosive amount of information and patterns and intelligibility and all of those have the capacity to tr- trigger you know different aspects of you and you could do mutually accelerating disclosure in so many dimensions you can know all of that like this but that doesn't mean that you've cultivated the virtue of being able to engage in it and so I think you can both uh, look for ways of enhancing in any particular situation, the novelty, the ill-definedness and the complexity, but you can also properly cultivate the virtue in within a worldview, right? That makes that more and more, you know, transferable to as more and more context where you can go into a situation and you're more, much more likely to fall into wonder about that situation. That's beautiful because every human being is a hyper object. It is, it does yes, have all of yes, those, yes. all of that complexity, you know? And so with choice choosing to recognize the novelty of any situation just as heraclitus talked about the the river you know yeah, yes. no man steps in the same river twice because it's not exactly. the same river and he's not the yeah. same man it's not exactly. going to the same old river it's a new river and it's a new you and if you choose to recognize that novelty and choose to have reverence for this new experience it's a practice it's not going to click in automatically it's not no. the gross it's not the, the that kind of gross massive thing that happens when something is actually radically novel like all of a sudden you're in a hot air balloon and <laughs> you've never been in a hot air balloon but you know it to take the power back to say no we can make this a choice is so valuable for any relationship and for life itself and if you'll allow me i want to i want to i want to riff on that in one dimension mm-hmm. notice that and you made a contrast between when you're polyamorous and now you're monogamous, right? And there's a sense in which you, you being faithful to your wife is not you believing things about her without evidence. It's the commitment you just made. I'm going to, I'm committed to a continuity of contact. It's always going to try and, you know, engender mutual wonder, open things up between us that I'm going so that's what faithfulness is as opposed to, you know, I, I, well, I believe things without evidence about my spouse. I'm, I, what? I don't know. But if you're telling me <laughs> what you m- mean by that is I'm committed, because this is how I feel about my partner. I'm committed to try and do that, that, what you just described so beautifully a few minutes ago. I'm committed to doing that. 
I'm committed. Uh, I, sati, I'm going to remember, mindful, I'm going to remember mm. that this person is ultimately, and not in words, but in practice, cultivating a virtue. I'm going to remember that this person is mysterious. I'm going to remember that they're complex. I'm going to remember that they're going to exceed any definition that I give of them. They're ill-defined. And I'm going to engage and commit to mutually accelerating disclosure and vulnerability about acknowledging that because that makes that person un in some ways unpredictable to me and surprising and sometimes scary. And that's what faithfulness is. And I'm suggesting this for a reason is that we could bring back a notion of faith that is more about faithfulness to reality as opposed to the assertion of beliefs without evidence. That's something I just wanted to suggest. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said. I wanna talk a little bit since we're on the topic of relationships. The Greeks had uh, at least three words for love, Yeah, um, maybe more. Yeah, and we we have one and <laughs> it seems like we muddy it up oh, yeah, all of the sure. time and there's all things there's things that we just accept as true because of the language love hurts no it doesn't love doesn't hurt you can't say that love hurts you can say that there's an effect that love can have yes. that could cause you to hurt right but it's not the love itself so we get very confused about what love is very we much. confuse it with many things what is uh you know, let's talk about trying to clean off like our understanding of love and maybe, you know, help people understand the way that the Greeks divided it and and how that's helpful in keeping love meaning what we intend it to mean. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> and um, this sounds like a Hallmark card, but I, I mean it <laughs> hopefully deeply and sincerely. I really want to understand love better. Um, I, I, if, the, if, if, if you were to ask me, John, I'm going to grant you a superpower. And it's like, I, you know, I want to be able to understand love better. Really, really understand it. Um, so let, let's start with a couple. And, and, you know, I'm indebted to a lot of wise people, Plato in particular, about this. I mean, there, there's certain philosophers that are paragons for a particular topic. And love, Plato on love is just astonishing. Um, one of the things to start with is to not think of love as a feeling or an emotion and you were putting your finger on it just a minute ago, right? If I love somebody, that can make me angry. It can make me sad. It can make me happy. It can make me lonely because I'm missing them, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a feeling. It's not even a single emotion because all of those are different motivational states. It is a way of being oriented to someone else and in terms of that other person towards the world. It's, it's an existential orientation rather than a particular feeling. And this is why the, 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 the Greek notion of love as like a God, right? Uh, and you have to get the Greek notion of a God, not our Christian notion or post-Christian notion of a God, right? The gods are, the, God, the gods are transjective. They're not just in you, right? They're not just in the world. They're sort of between you and the world. Uh, like, so, Eros, right, is, is not just within you, it's without you, and it's between you and other people. So you, ha you, you have to get that sense. First of all, it's not a feeling, and it's not just in you, right? It's also outside of you, and it's also between you and other people. And so, first of all, you, you, once you get that, that reorientation, then you can say, okay, are, is it one orientation? Well, they're, the Greeks have maybe four, like you said, story gave, but the, one I, the ones I concentrate on, because these are the ones that show up in both the philosophical tradition and then the Christian tradition are eros, philia, and agape. And 
what they are is about ways in which I'm oriented to the world that are fundamental. This is, I think, one of the defining features of love. Love is something you participate in. It's, 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 it's transjective. It's not objective yeah. or subjective. And so your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of what you love are, are inextricably bound together. Right. And, and so, and, 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 and so that's the shared orientation, but the way that plays out is quite different. So in Eros, I want to be one with something. Right. So that's, that's, that's how my self-knowledge and my other knowledge are, are going to be interdependent. You and I are going to become one, right? It could be sexual, right? Or it could be consumatory. I could eat a cookie and I become one with my cookie, right? So it's like the desire for union. It's the desire for union. And so it can go from the very carnal to the very spiritual, right? It's the right. desire for union. Now, there's another way in which my self-knowledge and my, the knowledge of the other can be bound up together. That's philia. That's reciprocity. That's what you and I were doing a few minutes ago. You open up to me, I open up to you, and mine, I'm knowing myself as I'm knowing you, you're knowing yourself as you're knowing me, and we're doing it through this reciprocity. That's philia, right? And then there's agape. Now, agape is really powerful because what you're doing is you're, 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 you're switching. So, you know, eros tends to be this way, although it, it can be sort of this way. But what I mean by agape is, I don't, let me do it by contrast. That, that's, I'm stumbling, so let me do it by contrast. Eros, I want to be one with something and, and, and merge with it and sexually, or right? Philea is, you know, I want to be friends or at least fellowship with somebody. Mm-hmm. Now think about when you bring a child home from the hospital. Having any kind of erotic relationship with, and I want to make, I wanted to make people twinge there a little bit because you know deeply, no, no, that's, whoa, I will just overwhelm this being because they're so helpless. We can't be one in that kind of fact, that sense, right? I'm going to be friends with this neonate. We're going to hang out. We're going to do, get into, <laughs> that doesn't make any, you can't be friends, right? But what is it? What kind of love do you have? Because, you know, I think you said you had kids. So have I. It's it's a powerful, not yet, powerful. Not yet. Oh, okay. My, it's my mistake. I'm sorry. It's a powerful. It's like, like it's a very powerful kind of love. Mm-hmm. And I don't love them because I want to be one with my kids. In fact, the goal is the opposite. I want them to eventually become independent from me and autonomous. So that's not what's going on. It's not eros. I know I'm going to be friend. No, I'm not being friends with my kid. What is that? What am I doing? What's the agape doing? I'm basically taking, and I don't mean this morally, I mean this psychologically. I'm taking a non-person and my the point of my loving them is it's going to afford them turning into a person. So this is how yeah. agape is like God. God creates yeah, yeah. people and we're making people. This is the what the Christian church offered the Roman Empire. It, it said, right, we can take all the non-persons, all the official non-persons, the women and the sick and the barbarians, and we can turn them all into persons. That's why it's so powerful. Such a powerful thing. And that's agape. So what you're doing is you are com- right. You're committing to, you're faithful to, the personhood of another being, either helping to emerge or produce that personhood, or helping to protect it or helping to promote it. Now, I would say to you, one of the problems we have in our culture around relationships is, first of all, we I think we 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 think of love as a feeling. 
that's a, that's a mistake. But the, the, the related problem is all of, we should have all three of those in, in, in our so-called romantic relationships. There should yeah. be an erotic component, a philea component, and agape. Let me let me go in, let me dive in a little bit deeper into uh into this a little bit. So agape could also be we've used examples with people all of the time, which I think is helpful for contrasting, but it seems like agape could be your love for your garden, for example. Yes. Or it could be your love for a pet, or it could be your love for a sunset. Um it could it it seems like it's uh it's not it's the most non specific to a person while still applying in certain cases and maybe all cases to people as well. Whereas the other ones, would the other ones, I mean, I suppose there is a desire for union with nature in some way an eros with yeah. nature, yes. eros with a cookie or, yeah. in, or, you know, you don't know an avocado until you eat an avocado, yeah. like that, that kind of idea. But agape seems like you said, more like the universal God love. So the, if you, this this is uh, this is very interesting, and this is where we, we have to tread very carefully. And I'm also I'm aware that you're an animist, so I don't want to step on your toes. But I, uh, right, mm-hmm. like uh, so part of what we're doing when we do it with like a tree, as opposed to a, a like a human being, I still think we're doing something like personification, and I don't mean that just in the simple literary fashion. Um, I, I think, uh, to, to, to put it um, into sort of language I use about participatory knowing, uh, it's not only that I'm personifying the tree, I'm letting the tree treeify me, if you'll allow that, um, mm. right? And so there's that mutual, right, indwelling. But what, what I'm trying to say is you're affording, although you're not turning the tree into a person, um, you're turning it into a thou rather than an it. That's what agape is doing. You're not treating it like I'm using uh, Buber's distinction and Fromm uses a similar distinction. You're not treating it as a, 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 a thing from a category, I, it. You're treating it as an I, thou. And I do believe you're correct. I do believe we can take the I, thou relationship, which I think we are properly taught in our agopic relationships to other human beings. And I think we can realize it with other th- with other things. We can do it with the tree, the garden, I think we can do it. We do it with works of art, some of Rilke's poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really convey that. Um, but what what we can't do, right? What 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 Agape is doing is it's is it's refusing it's refusing to treat the to 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 frame the relationship as an I it relationship. It's allowing the thing to have one of the properties that we most um attribute and, and value about persons it, it's a it's, it's allowing it again that mystery that complexity if you if i if i if i'm vowing a tree the track the tree takes on a depth it takes on a mystery it takes on a novelty it takes on an ill-definedness and part of what we mean when we say something's beautiful is exactly that and and mm. and, and so i think in that way we can talk about agape being extended to uh to entities that are not you know, human persons. What about the universality of a state of being, a samadhi, a place in which you're in love with all things simultaneously? It's this almost like enlightenment state. Is there a word for that? Is that just agape, you know, maximized? Is that is that like? I, that's know? a good question, uh, and I I suspect it's actually all three, 
but almost like you know three dimensions that are right uh, sort of joined together uh, and, and taking you into another dimension. I, mm. Because there's clearly an erotic element, for example, in mystical union. This is why often mystical language or in sculpture, you know, uh, mystical experiences are represented erotically. Um, yeah. People have noticed that. Um, and, and there are whole traditions that bring that out, like Tantra, right? Mm. And so I think there's clearly an erotic element. There, there, There's also, uh, there. I think there is you have to be careful when you talk about mystical experiences because they have a variety to them. Uh, but right, there is also something like philia. There's an extent, there's, and you have this in uh, uh, the Neoplatonic Christian tradition, epictasis, the idea that I'm continually transcending into God and God is continually allowing me to transcend. It's like that philia aspect. Um, and then uh, you're right, there's an agape. There's, there's a, there's a, a, you know, it's like Nietzsche's great affirmation, but it's more, you're saying yes to all of being, but you're doing more than that. That yes is almost like cheering for being like, you're really, yes. Right. right. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, very much. I would, I, I think that, um, I think that the mystical experience points to an er kind of coupling that's deep, like that's deeper than the Eros and the Philea and the Agape. It's, it's sort of the root kind um, the common ancestor, if you'll allow me to use an evolutionary metaphor. Yeah. What about self-love? Let's talk about self-love because sure. this is a very important thing. And what what forms of love and how are we applying these different these different types of love to the self? So let's. Let, I mean, I, I I just released um, not that long ago a series with Greg Enriquez, uh, another good friend of mine, another psychologist, um, and Christopher Master Pietro. Uh, called the elusive eye, the nature and function of the self. And one of the arguments that we talked uh, talked about, I was proposing, and they were uh, getting into dialogue with me about it, was, okay, so I, I, I won't, I'll just try and point to it. One of the th core things I talk, I, I study scientifically is the process of relevance realization. Out of all the information available to you, right? And all the information in your memory and all the potential patterns uh, of activity you can engage in, how do you zero in on the relevant? How do you ignore the irrelevant? The, to me, this is the core ability of intelligence. And I think it's with the core ability of consciousness. Now, that relevance realization machinery that makes us a cognitive agent, it's bound to the fact that we are this is from Francisco Varela, my friend, uh, Evan Thompson. We are autopoetic things. We are not just self-organizing like a tornado. We are self-making. We, we self-organize to seek out the conditions that produce us and protect us and promote us. We are, we, right, right? So we're autopoetic beings. So, so that means, and I mean this literally initially, things matter to us. Sugar mm. matters to the paramecium. It literally matters to it. That's why we have that language. Or look, look what I'm doing with my hands. It's import, import. It's important to me, right? So mm. wait, right? And so that means that at the, at the core of at least the initial versions of relevance realization is self-relevance. And we're discovering, this is the work of C.U. CU and Humphrey, that Self-relevance is like the glue of cognition. How things are relevant to me is how cognition and agency get glued together and work together and become integrated. Because you have what you're doing is you're 
You're taking the relevance realization that will make you an intelligent problem solver and you're binding it to you being a living thing, an autopoetic thing. So of course, that's going to be core. Now, the thing about that is, of course, you don't stay there. I just, let me do some one thing and then I'll get to your question. Because you are also a mammal, a primate mammal and a cultural primate mammal, you also realize <laughs> that not it's important it's important not only how things are relevant to you self-relevance but how you can make yourself relevant to other people and to other things mm. right and so that move but that move like that move is fundamental to the guts of your being you learn to become aware of yourself and understand yourself by internalizing how other people are aware of you that's that's the main argument of Vygotsky. You learn to take you learn to step back and look at your mind by internalizing how other people are looking on your mind, and you start to get these other perspectives and you internalize them into yourself. And so the self-relevant dangerous as well. Yes, yes. Well, all great, all great tools, right? Chainsaw, <laughs> very dangerous, right? Right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, <laughs> so. You, you, like this, this is what I mean about how we're sort of born out of love, that that capacity to internalize and indwell other people, the self-relevance and the other relevance are constantly going like this. So we should not think of self-relevance and other relevance or self-love and the love of others as separate opposing things. This is what I'm arguing, but as interdependent and interdefining things. Mm. It feels like there's almost to love yourself, there's in some ways, uh, and maybe this is an intermediate step until you've reached a state where you're unified, but it almost seems like you have to separate a part of yourself to create the polarity and create the dynamic of which in, in the separate subject object relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. to actually love yourself enough because the world is not going to love you in any way that's anywhere close to unconditional, right? But if you can create an aspect of yourself, a divine aspect of yourself, call it your higher self, your God self, or this, this really loving aspect and separate that temporarily and pour that love into, well, the self is incredibly complex and, and we're coming up to the end here, so we won't be able to get in maybe another podcast, yeah. but you, you separate enough to create subject object, you, put, you create that loving relationship with yourself, mm -hmm. you know, the, the rest of yourself, and it seems like that's the way, like you take a position where this is my divine aspect of self and I'm going to love all of the rest of myself in mutuality until I can bring the totality of myself up to a higher state of love so I can be more resilient to the you know, very kind of poison cocktail of love that we get from the world. I think that's very well said. And, and, and I think it beautifully actually draws out um, what I what I said and leads it into something I want to say, so that's very helpful. Um, <laughs> so that that like that that the, 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 the having the divine double, the sacred second self. I talk about that in the series, right? And this is and you can and, and there was there are periods. There's a, like in the third century uh, ancient Mediterranean, uh, this becomes just a pervasive idea. You see it through Gnosticism, Christianity, Neoplatonism, uh, just pervasive. And this goes towards. I link that historical phenomena uh, to the philosophical work of Agnes Kellard, aspiration. So aspiration is 
the way in which we take a relationship to ourselves in order to become a self other than we are. Mm. Uh, that That's the name for that process. And, and then I noted that very often religions, which are in the business of transforming people, both individually and collectively, what they often do is they will give people a sacred second self through which they can do that aspiration. And notice I'm still doing the Vygotsky thing, but I'm doing it with, you said, like the higher self, the future self. So, you know, St. Paul says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Or within mm -hmm. Buddhism, I'm trying to realize my Buddha nature. Or Stoicism is, I'm, I'm internalizing, I'm becoming Socrates, and I'm aspiring, right, in that way. And so I think the, the, the proper, I guess I mean that strongly, yeah, the proper or at least best, maybe that's better, right? The best form of self-love is that kind of aspiration because it is the opposite of narcissism. Whereas I'm not going to, in narcissism, I'm not going to change. I'm a black hole of impervious to change that sucks in everything and makes it change towards me. It's self-relevance without any other relevance. And that means, of course, that the narcissist can't even have relevance to their future own self. Yeah. They, can't, they can't properly aspire. That's the hell of narcissism. Not only are you alienated from other people, you are profoundly, deeply, ultimately alienated from yourself because you're, you're, the central feature of your capacity to grow and self-transcend, to aspire, has been truncated by the black hole of narcissism. John, this has been one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Uh, I hope we can do this again. Uh, at some point invite me i'll come back i enjoy this thoroughly uh, the, yeah uh, this was like well we we had a lot of dialogos there was a lot of you know back and forth and things were emerging uh it was really wonderful thank you so much yeah it was beautiful uh anything we mentioned some of the things that you offer what's the best place is there a central place people can go to find all of these different things website Go, oh no, go to my YouTube channel. Go to John okay. on YouTube and look at the Awakening for the Meaning Crisis series. Look at Untangling the World Not of Consciousness series. Look at the Elusive Eye, the Nature and Function of the Self series. Got a new one with Zach, uh, uh, Zachary Stein and Greg Enriquez called uh, Towards a Metapsychology that is True to Transformation. That's out right now. It comes out Fridays. Let's go there. And then I have the ongoing Voices with Raveki where I do something like similar to this. I meet with somebody and we're trying to get into genuine dialogos together. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you coming on and thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you so very much. Great pleasure. Thanks for tuning into the podcast with John Verveke. I hope you guys got as fired up about this conversation as I did. I love you all and I'll see you next week.